Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your guide through the spirit realm, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode features dumps, killers, outback corpses, and cold isolation. Let's all go stay at a random lodge for a few days and talk about scary movies. Number one, My Valentine, 2020, directed by Maggie Levin. A girl named Valentine Fox decides to start performing the songs she wrote by herself after she splits with her creative partner slash abusive boyfriend Royal, who found a lookalike named Treasure to take her place. Royal shows up to the bar Valentine is performing at, pays the bartender to kick everyone out of the bar, and starts killing people. Royal kills Valentine's bandmate, the bartender, and a guy that was in a band that opened for Valentine. Treasure then kills Royal. She then threatens to kill Valentine, who kills Treasure in self-defense. Valentine then steals back what was originally her identity and becomes Treasure. Royal is the killer. Royal had to be stopped, so Treasure killing him is considered self-defense. This is the Hulark I know and love. Knowing hate? This is garbage! I don't even know where to start with this movie. I'm starting to think Jason Blum appears on the doorstep of up-and-coming directors, hands them a cartoon sack of money with a dollar sign on it and everything, and tells them they have five days to create a feature film. I don't think the money bag has much in it either. Almost all of the Hulark movies, Hulu, Into the Dark, if this is your first time hearing me talk about them, feel like they were thrown together in a couple days. The premise for My Valentine is a solid one. Uh, musicians, abusive, manipulative ex-boyfriend steals her look and music and becomes murderous when the musician tries to take back what's hers. The material is heavy and the message of the film is important. But that doesn't save my Valentine from criticism. I'll start with the editing. This movie is obviously inspired by Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Hell, Royal is literally Valentine's evil ex and a carbon copy of Ramona's ex, Gideon. Problem is, whoever decided to add in all the comic transitions and multiple shots together to create that panel look thought that those edits and multi-shots needed to happen every two seconds. Moderation. For the love of all that is sacred, moderation. The editing in My Valentine is by far some of the most erratic, all-over-the-place editing I've ever seen. It's bad. 
hearts and other random neon effects constantly pop up. Again, moderation. Goopy sound effects are added like the sound of a sword being unsheathed when Royal pulls out a baby knife. The sound of a sprinkler going off when blood is coming out of people. It's bizarre. I honestly have no idea if my Valentine is supposed to be a horror comedy or not. If it's not supposed to be, we have a problem. If it is supposed to be, we still have a problem. But it would at least make a lot more sense if the goal of the movie was to be funny. Royal is played by Benedict Samuel. I guess someone told him and only him that this was a theatrical play because his acting is ridiculously over the top and bad. I do want to give kudos to Britt Barron, who played Valentine. She can act. I recognized her from her role as Mark Merritt's kid in Glow. Barron is solid in this and tries her best to elevate the material she had to work with. Anna Lore played Treasure, and she's okay, but when it was revealed that she wasn't a robot, I was confused. At one point in the movie, Valentine is trying to leave the bar. She's trying to do that throughout the entire movie, but during one specific part, there is a door to the outside that only Treasure is guarding. Valentine says to her bandmate that they can't go out that door, to which the bandmate replies, Pourquoi that girl, she is so tiny? In a normal American accent. And Valentine responds with, Trust me, she'll stop us. How? How would she stop y'all, Valentine? That girl likes she'd be 100 pounds soaking wet. Why can you not just blow past her? It's not like she has brandished a gun or something. A knife isn't even revealed at this point. Why can you not get past this small girl if she is in fact not a robot killing machine? Weird. It's just so weird. That scene is in the movie since it doesn't make any sense. Speaking of not making any sense, Royal is this tiny soft boy. He ends up tussling with the bartender character who looks like he regularly hits the gym. Somehow, tiny-ass Royal is able to easily overcome Jacked Bartender and kill him with a broken pint glass. What? Is Royal a goddamn robot killing machine too? What are we doing, my Valentine? I actually kind of like the neon lighting in this movie. I complained about similar lighting in another movie, VFW, in the past since that movie was drowned in red and blue lighting making it hard to see anything. Kudos to my Valentine for having the red, pinkish, and blue lighting, but doing it correctly so that the audience can still clearly see what's going on. There's randomly another couple in the movie, the opening band, and the girlfriend is constantly on edge and aggro to her boyfriend. To be fair, the boyfriend is kind of a moron. When someone says they should load the gear before it gets stolen, you go help them, boyfriend character. You shouldn't have to be asked to help load the gear back in the van. Gore? There's gore in this movie. Royal stabs Valentine's bandmate in the side of the stomach, completely avoiding all major arteries, which then leads to her bleeding out in like a minute. Um, what? It's a short knife and a spot that will not instantly pour out all the blood in your body. Come on, my Valentine. For the other kills, Royal destroys throats with a broken pint glass, and if I'm remembering correctly, a guitar string. The guitar string is wrapped around boyfriend character's neck, 
and used as a Garrot. This kill takes a bit of time, so it's insane that Girlfriend character and Valentine don't attempt to stop it in any way. I guess Valentine doesn't really know the guy, and the movie sets up the girlfriend not really liking her boyfriend all that much. Treasure kills Royal by bashing his head in with a mic stand. All of the gore for those kills is practical and well done. There is one more kill to discuss. That would be the blood recution. Valentine kicks a live wire into her bandmate's blood puddle that Treasure is standing in. I wonder if Maggie Levin, who not only directed but also wrote My Valentine, is a fan of the show Metalocalypse because Death Clock, the band the show is about, has an entire song about this specific killing method entitled Bloodrocuted. As a big Death Clock fan myself, I heavily enjoyed the live-action Bloodrocution. My Valentine is a mess of a film but I'm not sure if it was trying to be funny or not. There's a scene where Treasure calls out Royal for being a murderer before screaming as the camera does a small zoom in on her face. I watched it at least five times and laughed every time. This must be trying to be funny? I have no idea. If you want to laugh at a really bad movie, maybe check out My Valentine. It has a decent amount of bad funny parts and a decent amount of mind-numbingly boring parts, so watch at your own risk. Number 2, Tenebrae, 1982, directed by Dario Argento. A famous horror writer named Peter Neal goes to Rome. Women start dying. Neal meets a reviewer named Cristiano Berti, who's obsessed with his work. Neil and his assistant go to Bertie's house, and the assistant sees someone he can't make out murder Bertie. Neil's agent and fiancé, who were having an affair, are killed. A detective realizes Bertie killed the original victims, and Neil killed his fiancé and agent, hoping Bertie would be blamed. It's revealed Neil killed a girl when he was younger. Neil tricks the detective by faking his own death. He then kills the detective. Neil then dies after being randomly impaled by part of a metal sculpture. Cristiano Berti and Peter Neal are the killers. I'd say I'm a Dario Argento fan. I dig the style he brings to his films. Tenebrae is a gorgeous return to Argento's giallo roots. While it's not bathed in as much color as Suspiria or Inferno, Tenebrae is still a beautiful film. The locations for the movie are fantastic. There are two incredibly neat houses used, one in which two lesbians die, and another that is Cristiano's home. I would be thrilled just to have the opportunity of walking around those huge 80s modern style homes. Like all of Argento's movies, Tenebrae is filled with perfectly framed kills with generous helpings of bright red blood. The kills with the most exciting framing are back to back, the first is when one of the lesbians is slashed while putting on a shirt, which provides an amazing shot where you see her screaming through a slashed open hole in said shirt. When her lover is murdered, she falls backwards and her head goes through a small pane of glass. Argento and bodies going through glass go together like peanut butter and jelly. Both kills are peak Argento and are definitely in the top three kills of the movie. The other kill in the top three has to be when Neil chops off his cheating fiance's arm with an axe. Sure, the crudely amputated appendage doesn't look real in the least, 
but the copious amount of blood splatter from the limb ends up looking beautiful as it sprayed along a white wall. I'd feel weird saying something like that if this wasn't an Argento movie. The gore in his movies never feels real. The vibrant red with the framing of the kills makes them practically works of art. Goblin helms the music in Tenebrae like they do in so many other Argento films. Well, technically Goblin broke up before Tenebrae and three of its former members do the music under their own names. Allegedly the drummer owned the rights to the name Goblin, which is crazy to me. Tenebrae's main theme is a complete banger. I found it impossible to not groove to at least some extent while it was playing. During the aforementioned murders of the two lesbians living in an exquisite home, there is a long, continuous crane shot that shows the inside of the house from multiple windows. It's a fantastic shot that builds tension and shows the massive size of the location. Argento seems to love him some dog attacks, so at one point in Tenebrae, a girl is chased and bitten multiple times by a Doberman. This sequence isn't the most believable, but it is incredibly entertaining to watch the Doberman climb up walls and fences like some kind of parkour god. That girl unfortunately seeks shelter in the lair of a serial killer, Mr. Birdie, who has to begrudgingly dispatch her to keep his secret. The acting in Tenebrae isn't incredible, even though more of the cast than usual spoke their dialogue in English, there is still a ton of dubbing in the movie. The only actor I recognized was John Saxon who played Neil's agent. He's also in Enter the Dragon, pops up in multiple A Nightmare on Elm Streets, and Black Christmas. I completely biffed calling the killer in Tenebrae because I thought Bertie was so obvious he'd be a red herring. I also thought Neil's fiance was more of a psycho ex than a current fiance for some reason, so I didn't put it together that he'd want her dead for cheating on him. She did tear up his luggage early on in the movie, which made me think he had left her. Tenebrae is an entertaining and beautiful giallo movie with a high body count and decent variation in kill portrayal. I recommend it, especially if you were looking to get into giallo film. Oh, and if you're wondering, Tenebrae without the A means darkness in Italian. With the A, it means darkness in Latin. Number 3, Valentine, 2001, directed by Jamie Blanks. During a middle school dance, a nerd named Jeremy Melton asks a bunch of girls to dance with him. Paige, Lily, and Shelly respond in a mean manner. Kate says, maybe later. Dorothy consensually makes out with him under the bleachers until some bullies pop up and she lies saying it wasn't consensual. The bullies strip Jeremy down to his undies and kick the crap out of him in front of everyone. Years later, all the girls that responded meanly start dying. Jeremy doesn't hide that it's him, but no one knows what he looks like now. Kate has an on-again, off-again boyfriend named Adam who is, obviously, Jeremy. Jeremy kills a bunch of people, including people that didn't even say no to him at the dance in 8th grade. He then dresses Dorothy in his killer outfit, shoots her dead, and makes Kate think Dorothy was the killer. Jeremy Melton is the killer. As soon as David Boreanaz, which I will definitely mispronounce as Borneas at some point in this section, aka Angel, 
popped up on screen. It was obvious he was the killer. Wait a minute. He kills the girls that said no to him at the dance, but he doesn't kill the bullies? I mean, the bullies thought they were putting the boots to a sexual predator. For all I know, Angel could have killed the bullies before coming for the ladies. Since he's willing to kill innocent people, like a maid that Dorothy is mean to, and a con man that Dorothy is seeing, and the con man's ex-girlfriend who shows up at Dorothy's party. Wait a minute. Don't hang out with Dorothy if you want to live. Everyone in the movie who dies talked to Dorothy. Even the detective that was on the case before losing his head in a pond. The detective that sexually harasses Paige. I don't want to get cancelled for this, but the detective tells Paige that they have a lot of sexual tension between them, and everyone watching with me agreed that the detective and Paige did in fact have some heavy sexual tension between them. Everyone being myself and my fiancé. That doesn't excuse using your authority to get Paige alone into a thigh grab mix-up, you pervy old detective creep. Before that happened, I did think him and Paige had a chance of actually hooking up. What was I even talking about? Oh yeah, Angel kills innocent people. Him killing the girls that said no maliciously isn't even justified because he looked like a young Dwight Schrute as a kid. You gotta expect some hard no's to some hard questions. Asking a girl to dance when you look like Dwight Schrute is baller though. Mad props to young Jeremy Angel's confidence. Every time he kills someone, he has a nosebleed. So at the end, when he makes it look like he kills Dorothy to save Kate, my fiancé and I were screaming at the screen for his nose to start bleeding, which takes longer than you'd expect, since all the other murder-bloody noses happened almost instantly after the fact. It does indeed happen, though, to the surprise of no one. At one point, David Boreanaz wears a hideous green shirt, I have one just like it, which I wear to bed. For a second, I actually believed that David Borneas, there it is, had raided my closet. Why would he steal such an ugly shirt from me? Its ugliness is only preceded by its comfiness. Let's talk about the kills. I didn't know what this movie was rated until boobies popped up during an art exhibit the characters attend. Even after multiple pairs were showcased during the exhibit, I still wasn't convinced this movie was rated R due to showing barely any gore during the kills. I don't even remember any interesting F-bombs. Valentine is in fact R, but feels like a PG-13 slasher. The best kill in the movie by far is when Angel gives Lily the old Lord of the Rings Sean Bean death, you know, multiple arrows to the torso. Angel lands three solid shots on Lily before she falls over a railing, then down multiple stories into a perfectly placed dumpster. Another kill that's decent is when Scary Gary, one of Kate's apartment neighbors, is dispatched by an iron after being caught trying on Kate's pantyhose in her apartment. I forgot to mention Gary when bringing up innocent people Angel kills. I mean, breaking into someone's apartment and putting on their clothes is definitely a gateway crime to serial killing. Gary does creepily rhyme when trying to ask Kate out, and I don't think he ever talked to Dorothy. His murder is especially brutal given that his face is smashed in with an iron. It is off screen. The only other kill that is somewhat decent is Paige's. She's played by Denise Richards. I am also surprised I haven't brought her up yet. Quick random thoughts about her in Valentine. The kid actor they found to play young Denise Page is so good that I'm starting to think the creators of this movie had a time machine. 
They used it to acquire Young Page, and they also used it to steal my green shirt, shoot the scenes where Angel wears it, and return it to my pajama drawer. If you would have told me Denise Richards was going to play the most likable character in the movie, I wouldn't have believed you. Her page is the only character that has a moment of clarity regarding how awful everyone was to Jeremy when they were kids. She also punishes a creep. She pours hot wax on his genitals. He did ask her, verbatim, to wax it. If he didn't want hot candle wax on his dong, he shouldn't have explicitly asked for it. Her death is interesting at first. She's locked in a hot tub and Angel starts poking at her through the cover with a conveniently placed drill. Thing is, after he puts one hole in her shoulder, he then decides to stop playing games, open the top, and drop the drill, which is also conveniently not cordless, into the water to electrocute her. The hot tub was filled with both water and her blood at the time, so it's not a straight up blood rocution like in My Valentine, but hey, that's almost two blood rocutions in one episode. There is another decent kill where the con man's ex's throat is pushed down on some jagged pieces of broken shower window, but it didn't wow me since the movie Mirrors 2 has a way better version of that kill. In Valentine, the acting is mostly terrible, but I like Denise Richards as Paige. This movie screams early 2000s. Someone watches a dating profile video, the fashion, a cab driver looks like the lead singer of Smash Mouth, sunglasses and all. There are multiple pairs of heinous sunglasses. The soundtrack is one of the most ridiculous combinations of 2000s music I've ever heard. Here are some included artists. Rob Zombie, Marilyn Manson, Deftones, Disturbed, Static X, Linkin Park, and Filter. It made me travel back in time to when I used file sharing programs to download music in middle school. I didn't want to lie and say I used Napster. I used something called Morpheus. At one point, Kate washes the soap out of her hair by dunking her head in a toilet bowl since her water is turned off. Gross. Kate, you could have just used the water in the tank, you heathen. Valentine is an entertaining 2000s time capsule that is definitely in the higher tiers when it comes to Valentine's Day horror movies. Check it out with that someone special next year. Oh, and I forgot to bring up some dope cards. Jeremy Angel Boreanus sends his victims. The amount of effort he puts into them goes down throughout the movie, which I found funny. The first one is amazing. It has a pull tab that makes a guy pull out a knife and slash his date's throat. You can see the good ones in the trailer. Borny ass. Number 4, In of the Damned, 1975, directed by Terry Bork. Two troopers, Kincaid and his friend, capture a serial killer named Biscayne. Kincaid kills Biscayne after goading the killer into taking his gun. Kincaid goes back to town and the friend goes to an inn run by Caroline and Lazar Straw. The Straws kill him. They've been killing lots of people in their inn. Kincaid goes looking for his friend. He goes to the inn and sees that Lazar has a piece of jewelry that belonged to the friend. Kincaid stays at the inn and finds the friend's body. Kincaid knocks out Lazar but is shot in the shoulder by Caroline. More troopers show up and save Kincaid. The Strahl's kids were killed which drove them crazy. Biscayne and the Strahl's are the killers. 
a two-hour Australian exploitation movie from 1975. Thanks, Aaron Jesus. I started watching Into the Damned when I was incredibly tired and had to pause and take a nap after getting 35 minutes into it. I found the movie on YouTube and Tubi. I started watching the YouTube version, but the quality was so terrible that I couldn't tell what was going on. I switched to Tubi and the quality wasn't much better. I didn't let the abysmal quality or two-hour runtime dissuade me from watching a movie that was randomly chosen off my big ol' list. I'll be honest, it was a rough start, but In of the Damned ends up being pretty entertaining. I wasn't exactly sure who I was supposed to be rooting for. Yes, the Strahls are serial killers, but Kincaid also loves killing. He was tasked with bringing Biscayne in alive, but set up a situation where he'd be able to shoot Biscayne and call it self-defense. He then took the dead body into town, found a girl to spend the night with, and then started getting intimate with her, with Biscayne's corpse sitting in the corner of the room the three of them ended up in. That's some sick stuff. At least the Strahls weren't looking to get it on with a corpse in the room. I'm unsure what the Strahls' motive was. I think it's supposed to do with the murder of their kids, but they kill a bunch of people that have nothing to do with that. I don't know. Lazar says something about needing fertilizer. It's not like a motel hell situation where they are planting the people on the ground though. Ah, dang. Remembering Motel Hell made me realize that it's definitely the superior killer in movie. I still enjoyed In of the Damned. The kills are nothing to write about in your horror movie podcast. The best kill in the entire movie is when Kincaid shoots Biscayne through the gut with a revolver. I'm assuming squibs were used for both the entry and exit wound, which really added an explosive impact to the shot. It's really cool. The other kills pale in comparison. Lazar stabs and axes a guy. Caroline drugs multiple people who are then crushed by a trap bed that's top smushes the sleeping victims. I don't recognize any of the actors, but Judith Anderson played Caroline and gave a fun performance. She was nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress and Hitchcock's Rebecca, which I haven't seen. Sounds like it's about a new wife dealing with the ghost of the wife she replaces. They should have called it Ghost Wife. Alex Cord was also great as Kincaid, the sociopathic American badass hero of the movie. The score had a bunch of piano and a bit of synth thrown in. It's not a standout score, but I did enjoy it. Nothing in the movie is all that creepy besides when the straw kids are flashed on screen multiple times. I don't know why I found them so off-putting. Spooky-ass kids. Into the Damned is a piece of Australian film history. At the time of its release, it was the most expensive Australian movie ever made. Unfortunately, the only available qualities I could find to watch it in were Potato and Ultra Potato. If you are doing a dissertation on Ausploitation films, give In of the Damned a watch. Otherwise, I recommend checking out Motel Hell instead. It has 100% more chainsaw fights. Number 5, The Resurrected, 1991, directed by Dan O'Bannon. After her husband Charles disappears to work on strange experiments, Claire enlists the help of a PI named John to locate her husband. 
John and his first-hand man, Lonnie, find out that Charles is doing strange experiments that he read about in a journal that belonged to a long-lost relative named Joseph Kerwin. The experiments require lots of meat and human corpses. People start dying. Police arrest Charles and take him to an asylum. John, Lonnie, and Claire go to check out the old farmhouse Charles was staying in. They find the secret to resurrection and a bunch of living abominations. Lonnie falls into a pit of creatures and dies. John and Claire escape. John confronts Charles, who is actually Kerwin. Kerwin killed Charles. John brought Charles' bones with him. John reanimates Charles, which kills both Charles and Kerwin again. John makes it look like Charles escaped. Kerwin and reanimated abominations are the killers. I've had a bad string of luck when it comes to movie viewing, like Inn of the Damned, the best available version of The Resurrected I could find wasn't great. Would I have loved to have paid to rent the movie in a decent quality? Of course. Unfortunately, or I guess rather fortunately, I was only able to find the movie in two parts on Dailymotion. You know, that video hosting site that isn't YouTube. It was nowhere else to be found. I technically didn't search all that hard though. I don't remember why I put The Resurrected on my list. Not only was it on the list, it was highlighted next to a bunch of other movies that are supposed to be amazing. This excited me. Don O'Bannon, the director, also directed The Return of the Living Dead. I was praising R.N. Jesus. Then, The Resurrected started. The quality did indeed suck, and so did all the acting. All of it. No one came out looking good. It's like everyone was told to act like they were bored soap opera characters. At one point in the movie, John, Claire, and Lonnie are exploring a bunch of dark tunnels under the farmhouse. The only light they have is a lantern. Suddenly, a freakish flesh abomination appears. It looks amazing and it's probably why this movie ended up on my list. The effects aren't perfect, but all of the abominations are presented practically and look absolutely disgusting. Their designs are disturbing. The effects team, please come grab your kudos. The gross flesh that's disfigured with skeletal limbs poking out, truly amazing. I wish I was able to watch this in a higher definition, but based on what I was able to see, the monsters are top tier. So one of these horrifyingly incredible monsters pops up in front of our trio. John, the clumsy fool he is, drops the lamp. The trio is now in absolute darkness with the scariest thing they have ever seen that definitely wants to feast on their flesh. Put yourself in the trio's position. How would you react? Would you talk to each other like you're at a chill Sunday brunch? Oh, that creature. Still there, isn't it? Can you pass me the OJ? I need to make another mimosa. No, you'd be freaking out. There would be chaos. You've just seen some ungodly monster. How is it that you sound like you're falling asleep? The trio reacted in the most nonchalant way possible to the fleshy bone death machine. Their reaction took me completely out of the movie. Charles and Kerwin are played by Chris 
Serendon. I recognized him from Fright Night and Child's Play, where he plays the vampire and detective, respectively. He at least tried to act, but him being a normal rich dude and also a resurrected dude who spoke in an old-timey manner came off as humorous. The score and a lot of the sound design comes off as straight-up soap opera. Sound levels also fluctuate whenever the shot is reversed during dialogue. A lot of the lighting made it hard to see what was going on. I don't think a better quality stream would have helped much in the dark scenes. For some reason, The Resurrected starts at the end. I wasn't a fan of that in this movie. There is a part where Claire talks about interacting with Charles, where she says she said something to him. Then a scene of her saying that exact thing to Charles would play. The Resurrected is a mess. The abominations are fantastic, but as a whole, the movie is just not worth checking out. Maybe I just need to find it in a better quality. A lot of neat stuff is included, but the foundation is bad. Number 6, The Lodge, 2019, directed by Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala. It's a new movie that was delayed forever, so I'll give y'all a spoiler warning. Short, spoiler-free review is miss this one. There's a reason it was pushed back. ER, skip to 41 minutes, 32 seconds to miss spoilers for The Lodge. And since we've had Spoiler Beard's warning, here we go. 3, 2, 1. Aiden and Mia's mom commit suicide after Richard, her ex-husband, tells her he wants to finalize their divorce because he's marrying Grace, an ex-cult member that he wrote a book about. Six months later, Richard forces his kids to stay at a lodge the family owns with Grace. Richard goes back to town for work, leaving Grace and the kids alone for a couple days. The kids don't like Grace. After Aiden leaves a gas heater on indoors, Grace thinks they're all in purgatory after waking up with all of their stuff missing the next day. Aiden hangs himself to show he can't die. Turns out the kids are pranksters. They tell Grace everything was set up after she finds her dog frozen to death. Grace still thinks they are dead. Richard shows up. Grace kills him thinking he's not real and needs to be sacrificed so she can make it into heaven. Grace then makes the kids commit suicide with her to get them all out of purgatory. A craptastic dad, gaslighting, the kids, and Grace are the killers. This is basically going to be a huge rant. I wasn't even excited to see this movie. The hype died a long time ago after the continuous delays. I wanted to see Sonic the Hedgehog. Let me explain my killer list for this movie. Richard, the piece of dookie he is, decided to leave his wife for an ex-cult member he was writing a book about. Richard knows everything about Grace's history. Even with the vast knowledge of Grace's past, the dumbass decides to leave his kids with her even though they both openly hate Grace and don't want to stay with her since they blame her for their mom's suicide. Personally, I blame Richard. Not only does he leave his kids with an ex-cult member who's obviously suffering from a bunch of PTSD after being the sole survivor of her cult's mass suicide, he also thinks it's a swell idea to give Grace a gun. 
During the days of gaslighting, Richard only talks to his daughter on the phone. He never speaks to Grace and doesn't find it weird that he's only able to contact the kids. I get it. It's a movie. I have to suspend my disbelief to some extent. But Hachi Machi, the most of Richard's actions make absolutely no sense. Oh, and when Grace shoots him in the face, Richard had a couple years to point the gun away from said face, but decides to eat a bullet instead. Moving on to the gaslighting and the kids. I'm supposed to believe that these kids are complete sociopaths, both of them. I can't believe that Mia would be able to keep up the charade as long as she does. I also can't believe that Grace, an adult, doesn't attempt to check out the generator that powers the house after finding out the electricity is out. Sure, Aiden says it doesn't work, but in the situation they are in, you'd expect them to try and fix the generator or at least give it a second look-see. Pet warning, the kids kill the dog. They allegedly left the door open, which allowed the dog to run away and freeze to death. I barely believe that. I think Aiden just straight up killed the dog. The dead dog is sad, but from the moment he appears on screen, I knew that little bugger had no chance of survival. So mom commits suicide in the beginning. How? She pours some wine and takes some pills. Just kidding. She shoots herself after pouring the wine. This bothered me. Did you know that women are way less likely to kill themselves with firearms? Did you know that the directors probably had the mom shoot herself solely to add a shocking scene to their crap movie? Speaking of adding garbage into the movie to keep the audience awake, at one point in the movie, the score stops. Everything gets nice and quiet. You know where this is heading. The Lodge has one of the most groan-inducing, aggravating jump scares of all time. After everything is silent for a bit, there's a random jump cut to Grace slamming her hands down on an organ. Would this be all that annoying if only the sound of the organ was used? I mean, probably. But the organ sound is accompanied by an ear-splitting, high-pitched noise. That's not scary. I wouldn't even call it startling. It was solely an assault on my ears since nothing about Grace jamming out on the organ was unsettling. It just pissed me off. The first trailer for The Lodge didn't reveal that Grace was the sole survivor of a super-Christian cult. Eventually, a trailer was released that gave that away. Side note about how crap the trailer is in general, the trailer shows the end of the movie. I knew that nothing could possibly happen to the kids until Grace makes an appearance with wounds on her face in the attic. This happens in the last 15 minutes. Grace doesn't even have the face wounds until that scene, so it's obvious that she won't confront the kids in the attic until the end of the movie. Super annoyed that the trailer gave away both the ending and the whole cult angle. The kids are stupid. What was their end game with the gaslighting? How did they think this was going to go? Oh, I almost forgot that the Lodge wants to be hereditary. You know how hereditary had the miniatures? There is a complete miniature version of the Lodge. This is used to make the audience remember Hereditary. The dollhouse version of the Lodge has no effect on the story. A lot of time is spent showing it. 
The kids use it to plan their gaslighting, but its inclusion is completely unnecessary. A ton of time is wasted on it for the sole reason to have the dad see it, think, hmm, that's weird, before rushing to the real lodge. The lodge is almost two hours, the movie could have easily ended at multiple points, and my opinion wouldn't have changed. Do we need to see five minutes of Grace forcing the kids to awkwardly sing a hymn at the dinner table before covering their mouths with duct tape strips to have sin written on them in Sharpie? No. Was it an impactful ending? No. Did it make it look like they were all about to go protest on a college campus? Yes. Do I realize that's what the cult members look like when they committed suicide? Yes. Is the voice of the cult leader that says repent and a bunch of other stuff over and over throughout the movie hilarious? Yes. Is it believable that Grace wouldn't find the source of the repent recording which the kids play on a tiny speaker? No. Is the acting decent? Grace? Yes. Mia? Eh. Richard? God no. Aiden? No. Am I super sick of seeing that kid from It all over the place? Yes. The Lodge is what we refer to in the business as a stinker. If you're a fan of misery for misery's sake without any decent writing, I would still recommend skipping this. It's well crafted, the production quality is fantastic, but the story is dumb. There's no meat, there's nothing intriguing, nothing wowed or surprised me. Skip The Lodge. Number 7, Lock and Key, 2020 onwards, based on the comic by Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez. Joe Hill as in Stevie King's kiddo. He and Gabriel cameo in the show and it was obvious they were the creators. Joe looks just like his father and delivers his line in an Eastern European accent for some reason. Here's a really crappy summary of the Lock and Key Netflix series, season 1. So thanks for listening and catch you next time if you don't want spoilers. It's Junk Food Media. Here we go. After a guy named Randall is murdered, his wife Nina and their kids Bodie McBoatface, Kenzie and Tyler move into his childhood home. In the home, the kids find magical keys. Bodie ends up releasing an evil demon thing named Dodge who kills. Well, in the present she, well, most of the time the demon takes the form of a woman but also takes the forms of men so in the present they only kill a random kid by throwing the kid in front of a subway train in the past dodge also killed some of randall's friends it's really strange that dodge only kills a rando kid in the present no main characters barring dear old dad die dad's killer sam who is brainwashed by dodge into killing the dad also kinda dies, but I think Sam can come back since he was left in spirit form. There's a key that opens a door that makes you into a ghost. Where was I? Uh, oh yeah, so the kids try to get rid of Dodge by throwing them through a special door after they find a special key that opens it. Dodge's whole thing was trying to open that special door and Everyone knows that there is a key that allows the user to change their appearance. So when the kids find an unconscious dodge, it's completely obvious to the audience that the 
Knocked out body is in fact not dodge, but the stupid kids open the door and throw not dodge into it anyway. Then it's revealed that the kids shockingly didn't throw dodge into the portal that was behind the door, but actually this one kid's mom. Dodge is still chilling like a villain, got a friend out of the door portal, and was also this dude that was hanging out with Kenzie the whole time. Dodge, at the very least, makes out with both Kenzie and Tyler. At the most, they banged both. Based on evidence, they likely banged Tyler. I'm pretty sure both Kenzie and Tyler are under 18. Dodge is a pedophile. But Josh, you don't know how old Dodge is. Maybe Dodge is also a teen. I mean, I guess that's possible. Dodge originally possessed one of Randall's friends when they were teenagers. Randall killed Dodge after Dodge killed some of the other friends. One of the friends named Ellie, the mom who the kids threw in the portal, attempts to resurrect the non-possessed Dodge when she's in her 40s, which fails and brings back the demon, so the actual age of the demon is unknown. Still, stop making out with all these children, you creepy-ass demon. There are two important things I wanted to bring up regarding Lock and Key. The first being that the actor who plays Rendell, Bill Heck, wait, Homie's name is Bill Heck? Mr. Heck? That's hilarious. Anyways, Mr. Heck does a Keanu Reeves impersonation whenever he's on screen. It has to be intentional. Why did he decide to channel Keanu? Who knows? It's so weird. The second, Kenzie meets a dude named Scott. Scott and his friends call themselves the Savini Squad after Tom Savini. Scott says that Tom Savini is referred to as the godfather of gore. Incorrect. That title refers to Herschel Gordon Lewis or Lucio Fulci. I need to check out the former's movies. I don't think I've seen any from him. Tom Savini does have a cameo in Lock and Key, so I guess he's trying to rewrite history or something. Magic Keys? Oh yeah, the show is full of magic keys. Here are some of the abilities. Turn any door with a keyhole into a portal to another door you've seen. Change your appearance. Make crazy fires. Control shadow people. Make a door that leads into your own head so you can see memories and stuff. Make an echo of a person. Open a cabinet that fixes broken, inanimate objects. Open a door that lets you turn into a ghost. And open a music box that lets you control people and other living things. Whoa! That's a lot of crazy powerful magic. Are any of the keys used anywhere near to their full potential? Nope, not really. I mean, maybe the fire one? That's about it. The head key that opens your head door is almost used correctly when Tyler throws a book into his head space and instantly learns everything in the book. He should have thrown in kung fu books and whatnot, you know, like the Matrix. The whole head door thing seems stolen directly from Psychonauts. Most of the stuff in Lock and Key feels derivative of other stuff. Since the kids had a key that let them control people, you'd think they would have used that to combat the demon. Ah well. The production design is pretty incredible for a Netflix show. The head spaces are really neat. There is one spooky moment where the characterization of Kenzie's fear is introduced in her headspace, but shortly after it's revealed, we see the fear front and center, which takes away 
all the creepiness. Nothing else is even close to spooky. The acting is good enough overall. The mom is pretty bad, and the kid that played Georgie in It is super annoying. Killer Sam is probably my favorite character, and I hope he gets a redemption arc in Season 2. I really only wanted to say that the dad looks like Keanu Reeves, and Tom Savini isn't the godfather of gore, and I've done that. Check out the show if you want to turn your brain off and watch something silly. It's Sabrina tier. Maybe a smidge better than Sabrina on average, but still Sabrina tier. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 65, Dumped Killers, Outback Corpses, and Cold Isolation. As always, a big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their site, allowing it to reach y'all. If you dug the podcast, leave a rating on iTunes. It's important or something. Next episode will be out on March 8th. Until then, if you find yourself in a situation where the power is out, don't trust the word of a child that the damn generator is out.